I'm thrilled to have Mitch Album on today. He's a guy I've I've been a big fan of for years. Started with the sports reporters. I mean, a pre- precursor to, to sports talk radio. I loved it. He's only sold about 40 million books, eight New York, number one New York Times bestsellers, including Tuesday with Maury and the Five People You'll Meet in Heaven, which, by the way, is Margot Robbie's favorite book. I read that in research. That, I, that to me, was a real thing. Uh, his uh, Tuesday with Maury was made into a movie that 25 million people watched. Oprah produced it, uh, won Emmys. Uh, he's a columnist for Detroit Free Press, uh, a philanthropist. His new book is out in November, The Little Liar, a novel. Uh, it's out November 14th. Did I miss anything? Oh, that's that's plenty, Donnie. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. Uh, we got to first talk about sports reporters, man. I, I was addicted at 10.30 Sunday morning. It was 10 or 10.30 Sunday mornings. Uh, you, Bill Conlon, Bob Ryan, Mike Lupica, Dick Schapp. It was just must-see TV. Yeah, we really enjoyed that. that that's a kind of show that sort of, won't ever happen again. It was on for, I think, 28 years or something like that. And you're just not going to get a run like that anymore. It had a great little fixed time slot. Everybody was in the mood to do that kind of talking on Sunday morning before the game started for football. We all wore suits and ties. We were, (laughs) you know, we were, we were civil, but we were animated. You know, what it's become now, many of, I mean, from PTI to pardon the inter- to to uh, uh, around the horn to uh, first take to any of the shows that are on now they all began with the sports reporters yeah. in fact many of the people on those shows from Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser and Skip Bayless they were all on the sports reporters so it really was sort of the grandfather of that there was one show before it uh, that was kind of like it out of Chicago and then the sports reporters became sort of the de facto. Uh, gold standard of that. And we enjoyed doing it for many years. I was sorry to see it go. It never really needed to, why, to leave. Why did it go? I mean, that's the thing that should just be It was an executive at ESPN. A genius, a genius. Had, right. Yeah, another genius who at the time uh, wanted to, you know, try to win awards, I think, with, uh, with expanding the E60 show. And instead of just taking the sports reporters and putting it on ESPN2 or any one of the hundred other networks that they could have had, um, they just said, all right, let's just bring it to an end. And then shortly thereafter, he left ESPN. And so he wasn't, you know, and, and that happens all the time. And who knows if the next guy who came in and replaced him would have said, no, it's a tradition. How many things do we have on the air that have been on for almost three decades? Let's keep it. It's not doing anybody any harm on Sunday mornings. And it always got good ratings and all that. But, you know, I don't make those decisions. So, Just want to start with a little current events. Obviously, we're living through really frightening times uh, uh, with the latest with the bombing uh, of the hospital in Palestine. And we've seen uh, innocent Israeli kills. We've seen innocent uh, Palestinians killed. Uh, it looks like it's what the latest news is. It was a Palestinian terrorist terror group behind, not Israel. I was on Morning Joe this morning. And one of the things I was talking about was the rise of this. What scares me so much, what I'm seeing more than I've ever seen in my lifetime is the rise of anti-Semitism. And you wrote a column about this last year on Yom Kippur last year. Uh, what are you seeing and feeling out there? Because I've never seen so many frightened people. Now, there's a different level of frightened the people living in Gaza, the people on the front lines in Israel, versus the people in Detroit or New York City. But I'm still seeing and feeling fear. Uh, I went to a funeral a couple days ago uh, of a very prominent person here in Detroit uh, who started Weight Watchers, Florine Mark. You probably know who she Mm -hmm, is. mm -hmm. She's the CEO of Weight Watchers. Very prominent Jewish uh, community person. And when I pulled up to the funeral, uh, it was held in the synagogue, there were police everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, 
and I know a lot of the cops and guys around here. I said, what's going on? And they said, we're just being extra careful. I said at a funeral. Uh, wow. And so, yes, it's very real. Anti-Semitism has been on the rise. It's been that's not an opinion that's been documented by the people who document this thing. I mean, it's up um, thirty. It's up thirty-five. Hate crimes up thirty-five percent. The last, like every statistic uh, up 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's the oldest form of hatred in the world, and um, it it cycles itself through. I I wrote a book that, that you mentioned that's coming out next month, which is set during the Holocaust. I had no no idea. Yeah. When I started to write it, you know, a year and a half ago, that it would have any pertinence to today. I just felt that I wanted to do that story. I'd been thinking about it for a while. But it, it, it basically is about truth and lies and all the lies that were told during the Holocaust to fool people or to smokescreen what was being done. And um, now we find ourselves in a time right back with a lot of the similar stuff. So unfortunately... History does repeat itself if we don't learn from it, and we certainly have not learned from it in this area yet. Let's jump right into the book, The Little Liar. A, a incredible premise, uh, kind of. The, there's three main characters that follow, but one of them, little boy, nine years old. There he's, it is. He's, there it is. Let's hang. Put that up there. Let's sell some fucking books here, okay? Um, right. Never told a lie and was convinced by uh, Germans to that he should talk his neighbors and friends into getting on the trains that they were going to yeah. be taken care of. And we, we all know how, how that turns out. And then after that, just becomes a liar. And talk to me about where the book came from. Uh, and the book is told from the point of view of the truth. Yeah. So it's narrated by truth itself, which is an interesting way to write a book. And truth tells about one little boy who, uh, until he was 11 years old, never told a lie. And it takes place in Greece, which, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to write a story set the Holocaust that, that hadn't been done before. And there have been very many great books that have been set in the Holocaust. But unfortunately, a lot of the good ideas are done already in, in that area. And a lot of them are set in Germany and Austria and Poland. No one talks about Greece, but Greece, actually the biggest majority Jewish city in Europe was... Thessalonica, Greece. It had the only only city in Europe that had a Jewish majority. Wow. And the Nazis came in and wiped it out. And so I said it there uh, to try to make it a fresh story. And I, you know, I was inspired by a, by a, um, a video that I had seen at, at Yad Vashem in Israel many years ago, which is the Memorial, the Holocaust sure. Museum there, uh, uh, where a woman said, well, when they took us to the platforms with, to put us on the trains to go to the concentration camps, they had Jews telling us it's okay, it's all right, you're going to jobs and whatever. They, they The Nazis forced the Jews to lie to their fellow Jews because they knew they wouldn't trust, you know, if a Nazi tells you get on a train, you're going to be scared. Maybe you're going to fight for your life because you're going to figure out wherever they're going to go, I'm going to die. Yeah. But a Jew tells you and you're going to trust. So I thought that there was something horrific about that, you know, getting your own people to lie to you. So I thought, well, what could be even worse? What if you got a, a, a child to do it? And so this little 11-year-old boy who's never told a lie, the Nazis come in and they find him, they hear about his reputation, and they kidnap him, separate him from his family, and they tell him he can go back and be with his family. All he has to do is just tell these passengers that everything's going to be okay and they're going to jobs and everything. And he doesn't know any better, so he does this day after day, thinking, all right, well, now I get to go back with my family. And at the very last train, he sees that they're putting his family on the train. And he realizes, somebody says to him, they're not taking us to jobs, they're, tell, they're taking us to die. And he realizes what he's done, but the Nazi who tricked him pulls him away from the train at the last minute and doesn't let him get on it. And from that moment forward, as his family is taken off to the camps and he's left behind, 
he loses the ability to ever speak the truth again. It, it won't come out of his mouth. It like physically won't emerge. It, even the simplest things, he just lies about what, what clothes he's wearing, what he ate for breakfast, everything. And he, and it follows how these lies that he used ends up, he ends up using them to find his way to the concentration camp to try to get to his family. And, and I won't tell you what happens, but for all the years that, that follow him and his family and his, the girl that he loves and all that, and how he's affected by this one lie that he was forced to tell. And um, it's really a parable about the truth and how truth matters in our lives and how that very famous quote, uh, you know, a truth told once, a lie told once is easily identified as a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. And, uh, you know, I think we, we all see We're living, living in America what that means. I, I've been fortunate enough to come dear buddies with Harlan Coben, one of your colleagues, and I, I'm always trying to get inside his brain and go, where is it? Give me the germ. Good, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give me the germ. Give me, the, the, where, like, so this, your latest book, Little Liar, give me the, the I don't want to say the aha moment because there isn't one, but where it starts, what was there, was there a stimulus? Was there a moment? Was there something you saw or some, I'm just always, I come from creative industry advertising, but we're like, poor bastard stepchildren compared to what you guys do. So we write a 30 second commercial. So I, I'm just so fascinated by it. Well, I don't know that I agree with that, Donnie. I think that people who are in advertising do do uh, at least one thing that writers do. And at least I know that I do. And that is uh, you, you search inside yourself or your creative brain for something that moves you or that's going to move somebody else. So I have millions of ideas. I'm one of those people that gets ideas left and right and center. I see something, I get an idea. I look at a tree, I get an idea. I walk around, I get an idea. And I used to write them down until they invented electronic things. And now I type them in. And I basically send myself emails because I'm not very good with uh, devices. So I just keep sending myself emails. And in the field, it says book idea. And so then I can go get all my book idea emails whenever I want to go look at them. And there's thousands of them. And I look them over. But the ones I choose to write are the ones that I feel something when I think about the premise. And I do think that advertising people, these are the ones who do it well when they come up with ads that, you know, like make you cry. Yeah. Like the the Christmas ones, you know, the the Budweiser ones where you know that come the families coming back together, whatever, right, right. something in the snow, a Christmas <laughs> ad or something. I mean it, it I mean I'm affected by those. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm no different. I go, boy, God, that broke my heart right there. And and you look for that kind of a feeling, at least for me, because I can't sustain a year's worth of writing, which is what it takes me to write a book, if I don't have passion, passion. and feeling. Yeah. I can't sustain it just because it has a plot. I, and, and that's how I choose. That's, how, that's the germ. That's where it begins. And, if, and so I thought a boy who's forced to lie and then he sees his own family is being taken away and basically they're saying to him, how could you lie to us? How could you live with that? What does that do to you? That breaks my heart. And as someone who's, I'm very involved with children. I, yes. I run, operate an orphanage and I have kids here with me here now and all over all the time. And, and, and doing that to children somehow, that broke my heart. So I said, well, all right, that's, that's a place to begin. And I go from there. You're uh, too humble. You have 47 children in the orphanage. And one of your books obviously was about your daughter uh, who, who you lost. Talk to me about her. Um, I, I just, I, you know, I, I could just cry talking to you about it. I just, it sounded it just an incredible, incredible story from, from Haiti. Well, um, you know, I've got pictures of her all around here. Uh, 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 I operate an orphanage in Haiti. I've been there since 2010, right after the earthquake. I go every month. 
So I've been there, I don't know, about 150 something times already. Uh, we have 65 kids. Oh, I'm there sorry. Now. That's okay. It grows. And okay. I've got thir- 13 here in Michigan going to universities um, and three living here in the house with us uh, right now. Um, Chica, the little girl you mentioned, um, was born three days before the earthquake. She survived it when uh, it, the house collapsed around her, but the roof was made of a piece of tin. And so it fell backwards. So the roof didn't come in on her. The walls collapsed. The roof went backwards and she was on her mother's chest. She was three days old and lived through the earthquake. And uh, two years later, her mother died giving birth to a baby brother right in the middle. She didn't have a doctor. There was no doctor present. Of course, there's never any doctors present for poor women in Haiti. And and something went wrong and she died, you know, and the baby was born and Chica became an orphan that day and was brought to our orphanage. And um, for three years, she was like the loudest, brashest, bossiest. She was like Ethel Merman in size one shoes. You know, you could you could hear her across the, the you know, no, no, you know, that kind of and then it, when she was five years old, um, they saw her mouth was kind of drooping. And, of course, the Haitian doctors gave her eye drops. Yeah. I don't know why. I, mean, I can't even begin to think what they were yeah. thinking. But eventually I said, it's not eye drops. It's something neurological. And we brought her to America and found out that she had a, a brain tumor and something called DIPG, which is a four-letter word for death. And they told us that she would be dead in four months and um, we should just take her back to Haiti and let her die, you know, there and I said, you don't know this kid. You know she's a fighter. She survived an earthquake when she was three days old. So you better start telling us where the experimental treatments are because we're not giving up on her. And and she lived two years, um, and it was a remarkable two years. And uh, I chronicled that in the book Finding Chica. Yeah. Uh, and those two years gave us, my wife and I, a chance to become uh, parents uh, to this incredible, brave, funny, uh, loud uh, five-year-old girl. And um, since then, we have so many kids in the house, right? We've got a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a six-year-old here right now. And and uh, it's funny how life works because we didn't have kids of our own. We got married kind of late in life and didn't happen for us. And it was always something that we thought, well, our prayers weren't answered on that. And then 20 years later, this five-year-old comes into our life. And I realized, you know, first you think, well, what, why did she have to die? And it was so terrible. And then I realized, well, but... You know, she was also an answer to a prayer. You know, we, we, we got to be parents and we got to we got to have this family and we didn't lose a child. We were we were given one. And uh, I think anybody who's blessed to have children in their lives, no matter how long you get, has to look at it that way because it is the greatest gift. This is the first time we're meeting, but you're, you're, I can just tell what a, what just a special human being you are. And, and, and how do you, I, I was going to ask you, but you answered the question. And I would, you know, there's a wonderful book written by a rabbi when bad things happen to good people. Uh, yeah. And I, 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 I always wonder how you're a person who's giving your life to other people. Uh, and where do you put it when you go, wait, wait a second, what, what, how can that happen? What, what, like, where, how do you keep the faith through that? Um, that's an impossible question to answer. I, I, well, I, I, no, I, I it's not. It's, okay. it's, it's not um, because, uh, you know, I, I just, the book I just finished before this one was called Stranger in the Lifeboat. And it's about a bunch of people in a lifeboat who were, you know, after a shipwreck and, and they pull this guy into the boat and he claims to be God. And um, of course, they don't believe him because he doesn't look like God and he doesn't act like God. He's, he's schlubby and he's, you know, but at one point, 
one of the guys who starts to believe that he might be telling the truth says, you know, why did you take my wife from me? If you're God, you know, she, my wife died. Why did you take her? And his answer is, why is it that every time somebody dies here on earth, you always say, why did God take them? Why don't you ask, why did God give them yeah. to us? Yeah. You know, uh, and, and didn't you have, you know, beautiful days and nice times with your wife and everything? He says, yeah, every day. He said, well, that was a gift from me. You know, do you think I take people to be cruel? Would I give you a gift only to be cruel to take it away from you? Uh, and I, I, you know, it goes on to say, you know, this is just temporary here. Um, and this is just part of the big picture, which is what I believe. And so I, I try to look at things um, when bad things happen, and many of them have in my life, and I've lost a lot of very, very dear people to me. Um, I try to look at it as like, well, what did, what, what was, what did I get before I started mourning what I lost? Yeah. And how much of that did I just take for granted? You know, yeah, I lost both my parents, but I had amazing parents while yeah. they were around. And so am I going to just say, you know, how dare you take them from me, you know, yeah. or am I going to say thank you for giving them yeah. to me? And I that's the way I look at it. I hear you. So let's talk about Tuesdays with Maury. Uh, phenomenon. Uh, sold a trillion books, turned into a movie starring Hank Azaria, who played you, and Jack Lemmon, who played your professor. Uh, what was it about? I, I, I remember reading that book. What was it about that book that just hit such an error? I, I, I don't want to say what was it. We know what it was about to it. As you think back now, what's the, if you were going to give me the, the nugget, the germ, the, the essence that, that just made it what it is? Because it was more than a book. I, it, was a, it was a thing. Yeah, I've been asked that a lot, so I have had a chance to, to think about it, and enough years have passed. And I really feel that it wasn't some magical piece of writing that I did or anything like that. I think what happened with Tuesdays with Maury is that everybody was able to find themselves or their mentor in one of the two characters in that book. It's a two-character yes. book, essentially, so it's not you don't have to keep track of 30 different people. And either everyone has a grandparent or a teacher or somebody who is kind of their Maury, and they saw that person in them, or everybody was kind of felt lost or a little like, hey, I'm working so hard, but the success really isn't making me feel good, which is where I was at at that point in my life. And so it became a book that everybody just slotted themselves into or saw their own person in one of those two. And that's why I think it got such a wide embrace across the world because it wasn't just America. 48 countries, you know, 48 countries. Yeah. Incredible. More, yeah. At yeah. least. And, and, and I've gone to some of these countries where I can't even, I can't even understand my name on the cover of the book. You know, that's how, that's how different the culture and the language and everything is. But it's universal. The whole thing about learning from somebody and, 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 and losing somebody, death ends a life, but not a relationship. It, it's, it's like Maury said, when you get close to death and as we get older and you and I are older, yeah. hopefully not old, old, we're but about, older. I think we're exactly the um, same age. Yeah. All right. So that's older. Yeah. A friend of mine says, we're still in the third quarter. And I'm going, okay, third quarter. I can live with the third yeah. quarter. I just don't want, just maybe, don't want to know maybe, when the fourth quarter yeah. comes. Maybe there's three minutes left in the third quarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But still the third okay, quarter, right, you right. know. And you can always call a timeout right. and stay in the third quarter. <laughs> no, you can't. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, but but you, when you get older, you do start to realize that we are more alike than different. And that was something that Maury said all the time. And that, you know, what we experience, basic things, you know, love, compassion, uh, you know, forgiveness, 
these are these are they're the same in Japan. They're the same in Australia. They're the same in Yemen. They're the same, you know, no matter what and what we all think our differences are. Um, we are more alike than different, and and uh, I think that's why Tuesdays with Maury reached across so many different borders and barriers. It still does. I mean, I'm I'm astounded at how many copies of that book keep getting sold every year, and it's in schools, and it's in it's in you know they've made it into plays and movies, and um, but again, I, I divorced myself from you know I don't think it was anything magical that I did. I also think it was. You know, sometimes you do things for the right reason. I, I only wrote that book to pay, to pay his medical, medical bills. bills. Yeah, yeah. And I gave him all the money that they, at the time, they didn't give us a ton, but they gave us a little bit that paid his bills, enough to pay his bills. And that was, I gave it to him. And that's all there was ever supposed to be. You know, the book business, you're not supposed to ever no. clear your advance. So um, I when I was going back to sports writing and, uh, you know, thinking, okay, I did a favor for somebody. Nobody will ever read it, but, you know, you know, at least I did something nice and turned out to be something that a lot of people read. Let's jump into sports. Uh, how about them Lions, man? I <laughs> fell in love with them and Dan Campbell at Hard Knocks last year. I kind of yeah, a lot of people. I, did. I was like, there's something special here. This guy Campbell is like, you can't even believe he's real. So talk to me about what's going on in Detroit. Yeah. It's it's quite strange. Uh, you know, I've been here since 1985, and the Lions had one playoff win in that time, and uh, and and I mean. You know, there are so many years that, that the groundskeepers were better players than the Lions, yeah. you know. And so we're not used to this, like, success and people around the country saying the Lions are the second best team in football. And there's, on the one hand, the city has gone nuts. And, I mean, you can't, you know, not only can't you get a ticket for the Lions, but the, the fans are traveling with, with the, the Lions. Right. So, like, in Kansas City, that first win at night, there was tons of Lions fans in there. And when they won afterwards and the Kansas City fans left, all the Lions fans came down to the front and they started cheering uh, the post-game show, you know, let's go Lions. And so, uh, we don't – I mean, Donnie, Ford Field, where the Lions play, was so used to, like, when Chicago would come in or Green Bay would come in, half the stadium would be their fans – was the other way around. And now our fans are traveling with the team. So it's that perfect, we're at that moment now where, you know, I've watched this in sports, you know, we were the Red Wings, the Pistons, they had their climb up before yeah. they became world champions. And the climb is always better than the result. Yes. And then the years that followed when, when the three agents start getting, you know, they, I'm not getting enough money and they yeah. leave and whatever. So we're in that sweet spot, like a surfer going into the curl of a wave. And I, I just hope it continues. I hope our quarterback doesn't get hurt because, uh, we need him to stay upright, yeah. but uh, they're really quite good. They're good on, on all elements of their game. Speaking of quarterbacks getting hurt, I'm a Jets fan, so we're not going to go there. Talk to me about Campbell, because he just, this guy just, I, I don't know, he, he just seems like a, a character out of a book. He's a lot smarter than this kind of, you know, grubby caveman kind of thing that uh, people Obviously, you know, yeah. imitate him. I'm going to bite our kneecaps off and yeah. stuff like that. He's very smart, very, very smart, and he, he has a feel for the game. He played, he played tight end. He played here. So he knows the market. Uh, he, he's been in the game a long time. And, you know, you, if you watch him coach, you'll see that he coaches the game on, on kind of how it feels like it's going instead of situational football. So he'll go for it on fourth downs all over the place. I mean, they'll be on their own 38 and he'll go for it on fourth and two. And later you'll ask him, you know, like, well, come on, the book says you got a punt. He says, I could just feel like, you know, if we yeah. didn't get the ball back, if we turned it back over, they were they were on a roll and we need to keep them off the field, whatever. Yeah. And he coaches like that. That's and the guys appreciate that. And he also, 
Um, the guy before him was so disliked, Matt Patricia. Yeah. That um, and he ran a he ran a like a really a boot camp. It's amazing how many ex ex Belichick guys have not been successful. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, he was one of them. Yeah. He went back to Belichick, but like he apparently, uh, from what I've heard, when he came in, he kind of did away with Saturday time that you spend with your family. Uh, you said no, we got to focus on football, whatever. And like the guys. The guys he like, lost the team. Yeah. Couldn't lost him right there. And as soon as Campbell came in, all that stuff went back. You know, he did it. He's, he's a player's coach, so they love him. They'll go through a wall for him. I think the Pistons are interesting this year. I, I, they got a lot of young guys. You got Cade Cunningham. Yeah. Well, well, give, give me a handicap the Pistons for me. Well, Monty Williams is the is the X factor. You yeah. know, we have a new coach. Uh, Dwayne Casey's a great guy, and he's been the coach for years. But you know, they've been bringing in talent year after year after year. And they haven't gotten any better. Yeah. Um, you know, they keep getting high draft picks and they haven't improved. Now we'll see, you know, if they can, if they can first, if they can stay healthy, because um, Cade Cunningham, you know, came in like a lot of promise and then boom, was gone for the season. And then, you know, if they can get a defensive identity and, and uh, you know, and, and, and gel together under Monty Williams, he's got a track record of, of building teams. Um, and uh, I think more people are excited that, that he's there and he's going to, be the coach than even some of the players. So they'll be good. But, you know, I don't know. It's still that three superstar league, you know, uh, those teams teams that end up being there at the end tend to have the, at I least mean, two major superstars. You look at, Fe- you look at Phoenix, Phoenix, you look at Milwaukee. I mean, it's just some of these teams are just loaded this year. Who do you like? They are. Who do you like? Oh, I like Milwaukee. I like, uh, you know <laughs> – I don't know why Phoenix didn't do better last year yeah. to begin with. I guess injuries or whatever. I don't like Dallas. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going with any any team that uh, puts Kyrie Irving on. I know. Uh, Is, so I don't I, I think less. I don't understand that as a guy as a guy who ran a business. How you take a guy like that who has been a cancer everywhere he goes has publicly said done, and been involved with things that are so distasteful. And how do you have an organization and not realize that's a, and Cuban's a smart guy and I like him and I know him. I, I don't get that. I don't get how, because everything is about chemistry. Everything is about essence and mission. And I, I that guy just, obviously he won yeah. with LeBron one year, but that's LeBron. Well, I think there's a little bit of the Wendy syndrome that goes around some of these teams. They all think that they're going to, they're going to grow Peter Pan up, you know, and, uh, and we'll be the team that he'll come to and, and we'll create the right environment. And then all that talent, which is unmistakable. I mean, you can't deny that Kyrie Irving's got a ton of talent. Then all that talent will be used for the good. And they say that about James Harden and they say it about other guys. And then they end up being pills wherever they go. And then someone else takes a chance on them. Uh, I agree with you. You know, I think you build through chemistry. I think the Lions are a perfect example of that in football. You know, that they didn't go for flashy free agents or things like that. And, and when they got Jared Goff, everybody thought, oh, you know, we got the bad end of the deal. You know, Matthew Stafford, we lost him. We got the throwaway Goff, you know, the throwaway, you know, they don't want him. But they saw something in him. And, uh, well, the guy was the number now, one pick. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. it's obviously – although Zach Wilson yeah. so although Zach Wilson's the number two pick, so we, yeah. we got to put that – doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Wasn't Jamarcus Russell a number one pick? Jamarcus so. Russell. Uh, wait, wait, there, are, there are a few of them. Uh, who, who, yeah. There's one other guy that is just so, – Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf, who's number two pick. That's right behind Manning. Yeah. I think I think Indiana I think Indianapolis got it right. Um Boston looks very deep, looks very strong, especially now since yeah. they put Drew Holiday on. I mean, that, that would be my pick. I can't stand them, but that would be my pick. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, injuries play such a toll on it, you know, that uh 
you know, I hate making predictions at this time of year. It's a, it's hard enough to make a prediction when the playoffs start. Yeah. But to do it, you know, before a whole regular season goes by, just too hard to tell. Mitch, I really appreciate your time, man. The book coming out November 14th is The Little Liar, a novel. You are a scholar and a gentleman deserving of much praise. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Donna. I enjoyed it. <laughs>